You're listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. In a few minutes, you're going to hear a conversation with science writer Mary Ellen Hannibal, who's written a terrific new book called Citizen Scientist, Searching for Heroes and Hope in an Age of Extinction. I talked to her in a previous program some years back about her book, The Spine of the Continent, which is about the field of conservation biology. And I think both books bring to light the importance of two qualities that might seem to have kind of an uneasy relationship with one another in science. One is objectivity, which speaks to an ideal of observation without emotion or bias, kind of like the Vulcans in Star Trek. And the other quality is a very deep and passionate commitment to preserving the natural world in this time when it is so very threatened, and that threat extends to our own species. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of scientists today, a combination of those two different qualities, and that's what Mary Ellen Hannibal writes about. She's a wonderful writer, and she has a flair for making scientific concepts easily comprehensible to non-scientists. And she herself, as you will hear, has made the commitment to being a citizen scientist. And she lets the rest of us know how we can participate in our own ways. And I'll be putting up some links that speak to that on scienceradiocafe.org. So let's go now to Mary Ellen Hannibal. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thank you, Mary Charlotte. I'm really happy to be talking with you. It's great to be talking with you. Citizen scientist, what does that term actually mean? Such a good question. So in the very most general terms, a citizen scientist is an uncredentialed person, someone without a PhD, who is contributing to scientific research. But it can also be a PhD scientist who is contributing outside of their professional area of expertise. And in the whole realm of citizen science, there's a number of different categories. I'll just mention one more, which is co-creation. This is a category of citizen science that's sometimes called extreme citizen science. And that's focused on basically indigenous cultures and also on underserved communities, where the focus is on having the question that's to be addressed come from basically the people themselves. And then the scientists involved co-create a project where the scientists answer a question that they're interested in, at the same time helping a community of people answer their own questions. And and this is um, another kind of way of looking at citizen science. You open the book by pointing out the contradiction that I think most of us are living with, namely that in the course of living our ordinary American lives and creating things like families and work and dinner and things like that, we're also not only creating, but destroying. What do you mean by that? Well, it's such a, you know, it's such a difficult thing, but you know, we get in our cars, we have to get in our cars and go to our job. We have to come home, (laughs) stop at the grocery store, buy something to eat. A lot of the supply chains and the impacts of those ways that we have of doing things are really vastly overtaking what the earth has to offer. So, of course, we know all about the paradox of of using fossil fuels to live our lives when this is, you know, a very limited resource to begin with and also creating collateral damage in the atmosphere. Then, of course, you know, we have our food choices, but sometimes it doesn't really feel like we have choices about what we buy. 
and the way that an agriculture is conducted is also destructive to the environment. But we feel, I mean, I feel that we all feel this way, who are attuned to this, a little bit helpless. I mean, what are we going to do? We try, try to make choices. I try to not use plastic, but then I find myself using it. You know, I'll ask for a glass of water at a restaurant and they give me a glass with a plastic straw in it. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want that plastic straw. And it just seems almost inescapable that, you know, the way that we have built up our lives is using natural resources in a way that's destructive to the rest of life forms. So we are losing biodiversity at a terrible rate. We are in a sixth mass extinction with plants and animals blinking out at the rate and magnitude that took out the dinosaurs. But even perhaps even worse than that is is this biotic hemorrhaging of bodies of wild animals and plants that we're losing as we transform wilderness and, and open spaces for human purposes like agriculture and like buildings and roadways. Now, the great thing about citizen science is it gives us a way to focus in local areas to actually quantify what's going on in a local area by really counting up species that we see there or by making daily or weekly or even monthly observations of things like blooming times of plants, hibernation and migration of animals where we can try to see and locate where are the pinch points for nature. And then we can make some interventions once we know that there's a problem. So citizen science puts some measure of power into each of our hands to help create a picture of the deeper truth of what's going on so that we can make better decisions about how to go forward and it's not about not developing at all. It's not about not having agriculture at all. But it's about how we do it, where we do it, when we do it. And doing those things, keeping other processes in mind, keeping other plants and animals in mind, keeping you know the water flows and the health of the soil in mind, and doing things mindfully that it's not just about human consumption. It's also about these other life forms that we need to support science helps us make. Citizens are out there in the wild, in the tide pools, they're collecting data, and they are amateurs. Is there a danger that they are making mistakes, that they are invalidating the science that they want to be contributing to? Well, you know, that's the most frequently asked question about citizen science. In fact, there's been quite a number of studies that have tested and analyzed the efficacy of citizen collected data versus professionally collected data. And, and to a one, those studies show that citizen collected data is uh, just as effective and just as accurate as professionally collected data. And that's really because of the protocols that are set up for collecting the data. And here is also the incredible advantage that we have today of smartphone technology and technology in general. So one of my favorite citizen science platforms is called iNaturalist. When we go out to the tide pools, I take a photograph of a, of a species, a, a shorebird or a mollusk, and the app takes the photograph and it assigns that observation, the date, the time, the latitude, and the longitude in which it was taken. 
Now, this is the really the heart of citizen science, the exact location of where and when you see a particular instance of life. This kind of observation is the kind of observation that Charles Darwin made, that Alfred Russell Wallace made when they were figuring out evolution by way of natural selection. Now, that observation, that photo observation on iNaturalist goes up onto something like a Facebook feed that is in use and being looked at all over the world by experts and amateurs. And there's a mob sourced process for making an accurate identification of what that species is. But there's no, there's no mistake to be made because the app gives you the foundation. So you're not put in the position of having to differentiate among four different kinds of small worms or something like that? No, you would never. I mean, you could try to do it, but other people are going to look at that and say, uh, no, you're wrong. And experts, you know, in these fields are very avidly looking at iNaturalists. And it's really interesting. I had a conversation last week with with Greg Pauly, who's a herpetologist at the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History. And he was telling me how he thinks that iNaturalist and citizen science is going to revolutionize our knowledge of biodiversity of, of biology in the same way that molecular work in the 1970s revolutionized it. And this is why he said, with all those eyes on the ground, we're getting observations of species that are rare and of biological interactions between species that are hard to see. So he told me about a lizard where he has more than 100 observations that regular people have made of this lizard mating. Now, breeding behavior of reptiles and amphibians is a very important piece of information when you're trying to conserve them. Now, he says, I have seen more photographs of this than any other living person, <laughs> but I have absolutely never seen this with my own eyes out in the world. And this is his point, is that there are when you have so many eyes out there, you're going to capture data that it would not be possible for one scientist out there to find. Right. So it's really, it's very positive. It's amazingly wonderful. How much of a commitment is it? I mean, when you decide that you're going to, let's say you like to look at birds, but you're not really a hardcore birder, can you still get involved? Yes, you absolutely can. There's, there's all kinds of different levels of involvement. You know, one of the citizen science projects I do is the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory. It's a hawk watching uh, monitoring program. And there's like 330 volunteers, something like that. And between the middle of August and the middle of November every year, we have make a commitment that one full day out of every two weeks, we will spend that whole day on Hawk Hill counting hawks. And to be a Hawk Watch volunteer, you sign up for trainings and continual education, essentially. There's a continuous education process. And there's a commitment. And if you miss too many of your days, you're out. Now, other things like using iNaturalist, you know, you're not, you don't need to make any commitment to that. You can do it a lot this week and none next week. But I would say for me that I've gotten the most out of the ones that actually require a regular commitment. But you actually can experiment with a lot of different kinds of citizen science I think that the best thing to do to find a project is to just Google your area where you live and put in citizen science because a lot will come up. There are, you know, global and continental citizen science projects you can do wherever you are. 
And then there are local ones you can join. And for you, there's a lot of different kinds of rewards, including the fact that you got to actually hold a hawk, and you describe that in your book. And moments like that are very moving. Yeah. You know, that was a transcendent moment. Part of what the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory does is band birds. So we get the birds and we put a band on their leg. And there's all kinds of bird banding programs all over the world. It really helps science understand where birds go. It's kind of analogous to putting a radio collar on a grizzly bear and or a coyote. The first bird uh, that I banded was a big juvenile red-tailed female. This was just the most magnificent creature I've ever been that close to. And it was amazing to hold her because, you know, this is a hawk, right? <laughs> These are gangster birds, but they don't really, you know, she's not going to try to hurt me. Although she did, um, I, I slipped my hold on her and she put her claws on my two f small fingers on my left hand and started to squeeze, right? And that's how she does kill things, right? She squeezes them. And uh, I had to be rescued by my day leader that day who just simply was a big strong man with tons and tons of experience and he released my fingers from her grip. But you can actually hold this animal that will tolerate you for a minute. She wants to get back into the air. So letting her go and do that, you know, it did feel to me like this is what I'm doing here. I'm helping this creature along her life, not only her life, but I'm honoring all the hawks that came before her and all the hawks that will come after her. So there's a profound way that citizen science can help you reflect on your own place in the life cycle and see the importance of the present in terms of the past and the future. Yeah, very interesting. There's so much history in your book, and you go back to past citizen scientists, including people like Thomas Jefferson, and you also go back to the indigenous people of California. And I think there's kind of a, a myth that indigenous people lived lightly on the earth and made little or no impact. But in fact, in California, as you write about, native people were really very... I don't know if you want to call it scientifically aware, but they were doing things like controlled burns. They were masterful land managers. Describe that for us and what happened when the Spanish arrived. So thank you for bringing that up. You know, when I was writing this book, that was one of the experiences that I had in finding out about California Indians that really was just a mind blower for me. But yeah, there's been this kind of idea that the Native Americans were kind of simple hunter-gatherers. And the California Indian story is, is a very singular story because they were hunter-gatherers to a degree, but then they were also cultivators of the wild. They actually increased the number of wild species that they coexisted with. So they, they did not domesticate those animals and plants the way that we domesticate animals and plants for our own agriculture, but they managed the landscape in a natural way that was in alignment with old cycles of seasons and lightning strikes and so forth. So the Amamutsan people wanted to know from the archeologists, they said, yes, we'll help you figure out how long our people burned the landscape. We wanna uncover our cultural history. We wanna relearn our cultural history because it's been lost to us. So the California Indians 
had a, a particularly bad story. I mean, all Native American tribes have a bad story, but the California Indians had a really disastrous, quick and destructive story that happened here. And that was the, the Spanish colonialists came and made first contact with the California Indians in 1769 in the Santa Cruz Mountains. The natives there had been burning the landscape for probably thousands of years and cultivating wildlife. So the Spanish came and quickly stopped that. They stopped the burning. They also started to, eventually they killed all the grizzly bears and all the wolves that were on the landscape. And as you know from my book, The Spine of the Continent, those grizzly bears and wolves also, along with fire, have a biotic impact on how nature works. So when you take those processes out of nature, you actually make nature simpler and not as effective. So all these processes are quickly removed from the landscape and it went into a, a serious decline. So the Spanish inserted cattle grazing onto the landscape as a way to make a living, as a way to, to provide land that would have some way for people to come and settle it, even though there already were people on it. So the, the fascinating thing today is that those California Native Americans knew something about coexisting with nature that we don't know anymore. We have lost that cultural knowledge too. And, you know, we're never going to go back to living the way that the indigenous people lived here. We have too many people on the planet for one thing, but we can learn a lot about how going back to your original question, how do we go through the day without destroying while we're creating? How do we co-create so that it's a, a win-win as we are harvesting natural resources for our food and our clothing? How can we do that in a way that actually sustains wild populations instead of depleting them? You know, and then these, these Amamutsan people are connecting emotionally and to their ancestors and to really healing and uh, reestablishing ties to the land itself that have been lost for a couple of hundred years. And the PhD scientists are actually helping them do it. It's just a beautiful project. Yeah. Another piece of the book that is very important is a piece of math that describes the energy of the sun. That energy of the sun is converted by photosynthesis into plant life that covers the earth. Then the creatures who eat those plants use that energy for their own lives, including us. Then decomposing life returns to the earth and makes layers of soil and layers of oil and coal, fossil fuels. Now, we have gotten to this very weird and very kind of distorted place right now in terms of that math. Can you lay that out for us? Well, thank you for that, Mary Charlotte. So there is this energy cycle. This is how the world works. The sun provides a huge amount of energy every day, and a certain amount of it is purposed for photosynthesis for, by plants. And then the, the small animals, like the insects, the reptiles, amphibians, and small birds, they convert a certain amount of that energy by eating the plants. Then there's a certain amount of energy lost in that transaction. And then we go up the food chain so that by the time we are eating the energy of the sun, there's just there's a cycle that all works together. Now, we have so many people on the earth today that we are actually 
using up more energy every day than is converted daily by the sun, using the sun's energy. And the way we are doing that is by digging up those fossil fuels. That's the photosynthesis of yesterday. So in the, in the dark, deep past, when plants and animals died, their remains decomposed and became over time, you know, compressed and made into oil and gas, basically. So now we're using up the photosynthesis of yesterday to fuel the amount of people that we have on the, on the earth today. We are drawing down our bank account every day. And also because of the way that we are using the fossil fuels, we're, we're speeding the destructive cycle of, of heating up the atmosphere and creating all these other problems at the same time. Now, I, I'm really pretty confident we will get onto solar and wind and we will stop using the fossil fuels. The trouble is we really need to stop using the fossil fuels sooner, you know, really fast because, because of the heating effect into the atmosphere and what it's doing to sea level rise and ocean acidification and all that kind of stuff. The book Citizen Scientist is a wonderful book and it's very poignant, I think, for the reader because you interweave the story of witnessing science and the extinction of species and, and citizen science with the death of your father who died as you were writing the book. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your father's passing made you think differently about the work you were doing, if it did. Well, it did. I mean, he gave me a tremendous gift in the way that he died. I had written um, a whole draft of the book when he got lung cancer, and he really died quickly of the lung cancer. So I went back to, um, I live in California, and my mother still lives back in East Hampton in New York. So when he started his radiation treatments for lung cancer, I went back to help her out. And the, the story from the doctors was, he's strong as a horse, we're going to pummel him with radiation, and he will get stronger. He will First he will get weak, and then he will get stronger. So every day I was there, he was getting weaker and weaker, but the story was always, he's going to be good. It's all all right. At a certain point, we, we all realized without saying so that he was dying. Now, my father was a writer and he taught me to be a writer and he taught me that the writer observes and he gave me a lot of notebooks over the years. He, um, he said, you know, take notes of your observations and then you'll see patterns in your notes and you'll tell stories from those patterns. That's what a writer does. And a couple of years ago, I took him up to Hawk Hill. This was well before he was sick and he was up there. It's the most beautiful spot. If you ever visit San Francisco, go over to Hawk Hill in Sausalito because you can see the Bay Area from this like 360 degree view. And so we're watching these birds fly by and we're calling out, you know, Peregrine over Slacker or red tail over Elvis. We have all these nicknames for landmarks that we call the birds out. And the birds seem to come out of nowhere when you see them. You know, they come out of the sky and suddenly you see one and then you follow it with your binoculars until it disappears. So he's up there, you know, for hours with us doing this. And he says, so what you do here is you are watching an instance of life as it comes and goes. And I say, yeah, we are watching an instance of life as it comes and goes. And he said, that's spiritual. So I didn't really ask him what he meant by that at the time. But then when he was dying and he lost his ability to really talk as the cancer overwhelmed him, 
I noticed him observing me as I was observing him. And, you know, I'm observing him knowing he's dying and he's observing me knowing he's dying. And it struck me, I'm watching a life form come and go, come from this moment and go to what I don't know where. And so in subsequent years, I've been out on the hawk watch and when I see those hawks go by, I think of my father coming and going. And, you know, the hawks that we see here on the West Coast on this particular migration are almost all fledgling year. They're, they're the juveniles. They're the, they're the teenagers. On the East Coast, there's a big hawk migration, and most of the birds they see there are two-year-old birds. They're adults. Nobody knows why. So it, my father gave me this tremendous gift of thinking about why is this spiritual to watch this bird, this juvenile bird on its journey. And then it really came to me that thousands and thousands of generations of hawks before these hawks have made it possible for this hawk. So it's really okay for that generation to go because it's brought this moment in time to its fruition. And now I have children who are fledgling, you know, they're going off into their own lives pretty soon. And I wonder what kind of world I'm sending them into or they're going into eagerly. And I want that world that they go into to be, as Darwin said, this unfolding of endless forms most beautiful. And this is what I felt and realized that seeing that hawk and helping that juvenile by observing it is a practice of understanding myself in the life cycle. And my father's death is what brought that revelation to me, for which I am grateful to him. And doing that and seeing oneself in this context of generation and regeneration is a beautiful thing, and then confronting extinction in that context, that is the thing I want to say to fight, you know, and that we, you know, as journalists, as citizen scientists, whatever, are working really hard to try to stop. Exactly, Mary Charlotte, you know, it's, there is a natural rate of extinction. There's something that scientists call a background rate of extinction. And I think it's something like it's at least 200,000 years that a species normally has to live on Earth. We have been a species, by the way, not for, you know, something like 10,000 years, very little time in that scheme. But all these the species that are online to go extinct are, are online to go extinct because of human causes and prematurely. And when they go extinct, they will never come again. It's the end of the line for those endless forms most beautiful. It's not endless anymore. It has an end. And that's not right. And we do need to fight that. It goes back to a really, you know, fundamental sense of what we owe the creation that we're part of. And there's actually something I think that's very positive about even this disaster because it's made us aware. It's made us aware that we create meaning by our practice. And that meaning, you know, I want faith groups and people that have spiritual practices to get out there with iNaturalists. Don't just observe your own thoughts and don't just observe your own breath. Observe the biotic world because you are co-creating it. Mary Ellen Hannibal is author of the book Citizen Scientist Searching for Heroes and Hope in an Age of Extinction. And what we're going to do at scienceradiocafe.org is link to Mary Ellen's website where there are many links to websites where people can go 
to get involved as citizen scientists themselves or find out more about it. Mary Ellen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Mary Charlotte. It's really fun to talk with you. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. And if you're listening and you think that you might want to be a citizen scientist yourself, you can go to Mary Ellen Hannibal's website, maryellenhannibal.com, and you can find a link to that on my website, scienceradiocafe.org. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media and check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. And we are on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and on Facebook.com slash Radio Cafe. I would like to thank Steady Networks, providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more about them at SteadyNetworks.com. And I've been working with them for years, and they're great at what they do, and they're great public media supporters. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.